If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For author and historian Neil Faulkner, the 21st century war on terror echoes a series of conflicts that erupted across North Africa and the Middle East back in the Victorian era an episode that he chronicles in his new book, Empire and Jihad. It's a story that takes in imperialism, anti-slavery, moral panics and Islamist revolts. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Neil reveals how these conflicts changed the course of history. Neil, your new book offers a a fresh analysis of the Anglo-Arab Wars of 1870 to 1920. Now, I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners won't know a great deal about this episode in history. So I was wondering if you could start by by giving us a brief overview of the wars. Yeah, well, I I think um, that the very essence of it really um, is that it begins ostensibly as a humanitarian mission or what is packaged as a humanitarian mission, a response to the surging of the Arab East African slave trade. Of course, at a time when the the Western slave trade, the European slave trade was being suppressed and at a time when there was a very, very strong um, abolitionist movement, not least um, in Victorian uh, Britain, uh, that was then fired up from the middle of the 19th century onwards, particularly by David Livingstone, but also by other travellers, other explorers who were going into Africa and were discovering this surging of the slave trade. Now, what in, what develops out of this growing concern about the slave trade, and the reason it's surging, of course, is because the world economy is surging at the time. This is the great expansion of world capitalism in the 19th century, the building of empire, the industrial revolution taking off everywhere, huge increases in demand for primary commodities, including, particularly important in relation to Africa, ivory, which is then being transported by slave labor, and then the slaves become an additional commodity. This is one of the reasons why the whole thing is surging um, at the time. 
what you get is you get growing levels of uh, particularly British um, intervention to try and deal with the surging slave trade. And this escalates into a confrontation, which is essentially a confrontation between British imperialism, where British imperialism is seeking to advance its control, to increase the amount of territory which is under British authority, to get control of raw materials and markets and so on as part of this great expansion of European empire in the period. The scramble for Africa, of course, will be well known um, to listeners. This is part of that. But what this British imperial intervention does is something rather different from simply seeking to abolish slavery. It's about something much more than that. It's about layering on top of what is going on a new kind of oppression, a kind of coolie capitalism, uh, European domination. And what that seems to trigger is an, is an Islam, an Arab Islamist jihadist uh, reaction which then sweeps across Northeast Africa. It's centered on the Sudan. And I'm sure that a lot of listeners will be familiar with, um, with the Mahdi, with General Gordon defending Khartoum, then later General Kitchener going down the Nile to reconquer the Sudan. That's the, that's the core of it. But actually this jihadist movement is much broader uh, than that. And what the book is trying to do is to look at that jihadist movement in the broadest possible sense, but to put it in the context of a reaction to British imperialism as British imperialism becomes a, an increasingly dominant force in the region in the late 19th century. Now, you, descri you describe this, or, or say it could be described, as the first modern jihad. But what, in your opinion, qualifies this episode as a modern jihad? Well, I mean, the idea of, of jihad, of course, goes right back to the, um, the origins of uh, Islam. Though, let's be clear, um, there's nothing, holy war is not just an Islamic concept. Um, it's very much a Christian concept as well. The whole of the Crusades, of course, were framed by the idea of holy war. So it's much broader than just um, Islam, but of course it's there at the very beginning of Islam. And you know, if we you know if we take the example of the Crusades, when Saladin mounts his great counteroffensive against the Crusades in the medieval period, he frames it as a jihad. He frames it as a holy war. So it's a very old idea. It's a medieval um, idea. But I think what is happening in the 19th century is that there is a recasting of that idea, almost a reinvention of that idea in the context of a threat from modernity, a threat from industrialism, a threat from modern imperialism. And it's a deeply reactionary movement now. And, you know, central to the book is the argument that this is a collision between two really deeply reactionary forces. On the one hand, British imperialism, which is all about the enrichment of a relatively small, you know, capitalist um, elite based in the uh, West, you know, particularly London and Paris, actually, in relation to what's happening um, in the Middle East. So that does not represent 
um, a kind of progressive way forwards for the people of the region. But the Islamist reaction is also deeply reactionary because what is happening here is that there's a, a rejection of the whole of modernity and a desire to turn the clock right back to a medieval uh, past and actually at the very core of what the Islamists are trying to do is to defend the slave trade. So, so that in effect, the holy war, the jihadist war, the war waged by the Mahdi in the Sudan, the war waged by the Mad Mullah, as the British call him, in Somali land, is actually about protecting the Arab slave trade against attempts to eradicate it in the context of creating a different kind um, of economy, um, controlled essentially by European uh, imperialists. So what were the main milestones in these wars? I mean, where, where did the two sides clash on the battlefield? Well, and um, I mean, we, we, I've already said very familiar is what happens in the Sudan. And there are, there are two major phases in the conflict in the Sudan itself. There's a, there's a, there's a conflict in the um, early 1880s, which is when General Gordon is defending Khartoum and there's an expedition which is sent to rescue him uh, under Garnet Woolsey, which, which fails. Uh, that reaches its climax in 1884, 1885. And then the next uh, sort of highlight, really, is the reconquest of the Sudan between 1896 and 1898 under General Kitchener, which is partly a response to the growing threat of other European imperial powers, actually. That's why the British want to secure control of the um, Sudan. Now, these are highlights, and they're relatively familiar to you know, people interested in history. Um, what I'm also trying to bring out in the book is that there's an earlier phase where there are major anti-slavery wars being fought in the 1870s. And they're actually being fought by people who are sort of almost freelancers working for the Turco-Egyptian authority at the time when the Sudan is actually under Turco-Egyptian authority, not under British authority. So General Gordon is there in the Sudan in the 1870s, but he has officers working for him who are actively trying to suppress uh, the slave trade in the 1870s. And a major, major war actually is fought um, in the 1870s and a quite successful one initially against the slave traders. So there's a lot of emphasis uh, in the book on that earlier phase of the anti-slavery war. And then also what I try to do is I try to extend the story beyond the fall of uh, uh, the Sudan, the overthrow of the Khalifa, the, the, the caliphate that is created in the Sudan. And I show how the ripple effect um, produces an insurgency in Somalia that proves to be extremely intractable, very, very difficult to deal with and carries on really right up until 1920. And how also in the context of the First World War, you get this Deep concern on the part of the British authorities, actually, that there's going to be a jihadist revolt in the context of the First World War, stirred up by the Ottoman Empire, supported by Imperial uh, Germany, because, of course, the British, like their allies in the First World War, the French and the Russians, 
they are responsible for lots and lots of Muslim subjects in their respective empires. So the possibility of a jihad spreading across the Islamic world is very, very worrying indeed for the Entente powers in the First World War. And we get echoes of that jihadist insurgency during the First World War. A major revolt, for example, in the Western Desert by the Senussi, who are essentially um, Islamists. So that's the, the, the central to the book, really, is an attempt to say, look, there's a single story here which is unfolding between 1870 and 1920. It's not just about what is happening in the Sudan, though that is very much at the core of the book. Sure. Now, as you've already mentioned, you, you described this as a as a battle essentially between two systems of oppression, the, the Arab slave trade and, as you've already said, European coolie capitalism. I mean, for you, is that the real tragedy of this story, that, 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 that there was no good guys in this, that there was two deeply flawed systems battling out against one another? Well, um... Again, one of the things I tried to highlight in the book is that I think there were, on the stage of history at this time, some good guys, uh, but the good guys get taken out. Um, um, and the the a crucially important person for me is Colonel Arabi Pasha, who was a kind of uh, precursor of General Nasser. Uh, in the uh, 1950s. He was an Egyptian uh, nationalist leader. Uh, he was a liberal. Uh, he had a vision of uh, Egypt becoming um, a developed modern state with um, a proper constitution, with the rule of law, all of those kind of liberal principles um, being applied to um, Egypt. And he, is, he becomes the leader of an Egyptian revolutionary movement in 1881-1882. Now, the problem as far as the British um, uh, are concerned is that uh, what Colonel Arabi represents is a movement of the ordinary Egyptian people to overthrow a client regime, which is ensuring that uh, interest payments on the massive, massive Egyptian debt will continue to flow to bankers in London and Paris. And the uh, Liberal Prime Minister, William Gladstone, authorises a military expedition, a full-scale military expedition, um, to smash the Egyptian nationalist uh, revolution, essentially in the interests of Anglo-French finance capital, in order to ensure that these flows of interest will continue to flow uh, to the bankers. It's described as, at the time by critics as a bondholders' war, uh, a bankers' war. And of course, we are very, very familiar, aren't we, with the burden of debt being imposed on global South countries uh, at the expense of the people of the region who ultimately are having to pay these debts, enriching a small minority in the metropolitan centers of modern capitalism. It was the same sort of story unfolding um, in Egypt in 1881-1882. And the smashing of that revolution, um, the decisive battle, which I look at in considerable detail in the book, was the Battle of Tel el-Kabir. Um, that smashing of the Egyptian nationalist revolution shuts off 
in my view, a progressive alternative and opens the space, really, which the jihadists then fill with their reactionary um, program of a return to the Middle Ages. So instead of moving forwards to the creation of a modern Egypt and a modern Northeast Africa, we're pushed back to a choice between European imperialism or a kind of barbaric medieval uh, jihadism. What was life like for those caught in the middle of, the, of, of these conflicts, the, the quote-unquote dispossessed multitudes? I mean, what was it like to be caught up in, the, in all this bloodshed and chaos? Well, I think it was pretty awful. I mean, uh, you know, whether you were in um, Egypt uh, or in Sudan, uh, let us take those two examples in the latter part of the 19th century. Um, the great bulk of the population of uh, Egypt, they were, they were peasants uh, working small plots of land in the delta or along on the banks of the Nile. Um, they were subject to very high levels of uh, taxation, brutally enforced. I mean, tax collection in uh, Egypt in this period, as had been the case for thousands of years, actually, was a paramilitary operation. So the tax collectors would be going into the villages um, armed. They'd be armed with whips and, and with rifles. It was a brutal process of extracting surplus from an impoverished uh, peasantry to support um, a client um, elite uh, in Egypt, but more importantly, to sustain the flow of payments to um, uh, the uh, to, to, to the to the bankers, but in Sudan, um, under the authority of the uh, the Mahdists, um, because of course between 1885 and the reconquest in in 1898, there is an Islamic caliphate um, in Sudan. It's 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 no better. Certainly, if you are a slave because we see a surging of the slave trade um, under the Islamist regime. But even if you are an ordinary Sudanese peasant, again, what you're having imposed upon you is very high levels, actually, of taxation, of labour service, of military uh, conscription, in order to sustain uh, the military infrastructure um, of the uh, caliphate. So I think worth saying as well, actually, that particularly if you were a woman, if you were a woman slave, if you were a woman uh, uh, peasant, uh, you, you suffered multiple oppressions, whether you were in Egypt uh, or in Sudan. And central to the book really is this sense that this is a, um, a dystopian situation that we have in the region in the late 19th century, with nothing positive, nothing progressive, nothing beneficial for yeah. the great majority of the ordinary people. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He's seen as an idealist, therefore he's lionised by the Victorian public, but in a sense what's really happening here is that he's being used as an instrument for the advancement of British imperial um, interests, despite his own best intentions. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Okay, so let's turn to Charles George Gordon, better known as Gordon of Khartoum, of course. As you point out, he was perhaps a consummate example of the new class of hero in Victorian Britain, while in fact suffering from bipolar disorder and religious mania. Can you tell us a bit about his character and his role in this story? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very interesting fact. One of the things I don't, I sort of, as a historian, I reject is this attempt to put everybody either into the black box or the white box. They're either baddies or they're goodies. History is not like that. History is much more complex. And uh, characters, major historical characters, uh, are multidimensional. And one of the things I argue in the book is that there are figures who emerge in the mid-Victorian period who are essentially um, benevolent in their outlook and in their aspirations. And I make this point about uh, David Livingstone. I think it's true of him for all his faults. I make the point also about Charles Gordon uh, for all his faults. His in, I mean, he was, he was an imperialist. He was a liberal uh, imperialist. He was a, uh, a Victorian uh, soldier and so on and so forth. But his intentions were essentially good. I think he was a deeply religious, a deeply conscientious man. I think his his deep hostility to the slave trade was absolutely genuine. I think he was sometimes very, very naive about the people who were employing him and what their intentions were. But I think there's no question at all that he was a genuine um, abolitionist. Um, so Gordon is a very, very interesting character from that point of view, because he's really... I think, torn apart 
by the contradictions. Because on the one hand, he is there in the Sudan as an abolitionist, as an idealist, as a man who wants to improve the lives of ordinary people. Yet he's trapped in a framework that prevents him from achieving that, from realizing uh, that uh, aspiration. And ultimately, he becomes a supreme symbol, actually, of British imperialism. And why is he able to do that? Well, it's precisely because he's not one of these gung-ho, hawkish uh, figures who really don't, who don't connect with people because they don't represent an ideal, they don't represent a vision, they don't represent something positive. Gordon does. Gordon is the ideal Victorian hero because he is a man of God, because he is so conscientious, because he's a genuine abolitionist, he's seen as an idealist, therefore he's lionized by the Victorian public, but in a sense what's really happening here is that he's being used as an instrument for the advancement of British imperial um, interests, despite his own best intentions. Neil, you argue in the book that traditional English language accounts of have often been either consciously or unthinkingly sympathetic to the imperial project. Often, you argue, far too sympathetic. I mean, can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, uh, we, we are now very much in a post-imperial age. Um, but nonetheless, there is, a, there is a strong legacy, isn't there, of um, uh, the British Empire, bound up with British nationalism, British patriotism, British tradition, British history, and so on. It's still very, very much uh, there. And I think that does still infect a lot of uh, European, uh, perhaps particularly British, um, historiography. I think it's still the case that the British Empire uh, tends to be portrayed historically in um, an unjustifiably uh, sympathetic uh, way. That is still there. Whereas I would argue without hesitation um, that imperialism is invariably uh, pernicious. Uh, it is invariably a, a matter of one society taking over the territory, the resources of another society and exploiting them, using them uh, for their own uh, benefit. That's what imperialism is. In, you know, nobody builds an empire in the interests of the people who become the subjects of the empire. All empires are built in the interests of the empire uh, builders. And we have to be absolutely clear about the nature of European um, imperialism and the ongoing legacy, really, um, of European imperialism, which is still there in the sort of relative underdevelopment of so much of the global south and in various kind of neo-colonial and arrangements that are uh, still with us. On the other hand, what I think you tend to get uh, is the kind of um, reverse of that, a kind of reaction to that in many of the countries which have been victims of imperialism, where figures who are actually very questionable in character, because they have resisted imperialism in some way, are put up on a pedestal. Now, I'm going to give the example, not of the Mahdi, though we could use the Sudanese yeah. Mahdi as an example. I'm going to give the example of the so-called Mad Mullah 
uh, of Somaliland, the mullah of Somaliland, who organizes um, an insurgency. And I talk about that. There's a whole chapter devoted to this. Um, it's a 20-year uh, insurgency. And what I say about it is that, yes, it is directed um, against a relatively small British presence on the coast of Somaliland in this period, but it's primarily directed against ordinary Somalis. What the uh, jihadists um, are actually doing is they're preying upon uh, other Somalis who don't support uh, the jihad. And Somali, Somaliland, Somalia as it is today, is immensely impoverished. It was immensely impoverished at the time, one of the poorest places on earth desperately, desperately poor uh, people. And you have this sort of jihadist insurgency imposed upon it. And it's really a kind of religious sanction for what is effect larceny, what is in effect robbery, and so on. There's nothing remotely admirable um, about what is going on, about the movement that is led by um, uh, the, uh, the mullah. And yet he is regarded in Somalia today as a kind of anti-imperialist resistance hero. So, you know, he has he has statues in public places and, and that kind of thing. So one of the things the book, book is trying to do is, is to say that we need to be, we, we need a much more realistic assessment of ways of resisting imperialism, which are genuinely progressive and ways of resisting in, in, imperialism, which are not. And that, that, echoes absolutely in the present. Because if we think, I'm just going to throw a modern example in to give an indication of what I mean. If we think about the difference, contemporary events, we think about the difference between the fall of Saigon in 1975 to a genuine movement for national independence and economic development and social reform, which is what the Vietnamese National Liberation Front was. We contrast that with the fall of Kabul to the Taliban right now. The Taliban does not represent any kind of progressive future for the people of Afghanistan. It's a deeply reactionary movement. I think it's a form of fascism, actually, which targets women, which targets minorities, which targets people who are the wrong sort of Muslim. This is a form of fascism. It represents nothing in terms of improvement and reform for the ordinary people of Afghanistan. So we have to be, I think we have to be very critical of a lot of these movements which emerge in response to imperialism because they're not necessarily representing a progressive alternative. Now, can anybody be said to have won these wars? I mean, what was the balance of power in this region in the years following 1920? Um, I, th I think uh, clearly the British, they do emerge in effective control of Northeast Africa. Um, they keep the French out. Uh, they keep other European powers out. They eventually suppress all of the various um, Islamist insurgencies. And of course, coming out of the First World War, the British control even more of the Middle East uh, than they did at the beginning. I mean, you know, British control expands across, uh, it, you know, includes Palestine, Jordan and Iraq as a result of the final settlement coming out of the First World War. So the British emerge as a more powerful uh, imperial uh, country uh, as, a as a result of all of these um, conflicts. Um, however, um, 
in the in the somewhat longer term, what the British face is a different kind of threat to imperial uh, rule, uh, which is the emergence of uh, an Arab uh, nationalist movement, which I guess reaches its peak in the 1950s and the 1960s, where you get this wave of um, not just independence movements, but also movements which are uh, driven by relatively radical um, Arab nationalist leaders who are saying it's not just about independence, it's also about developing our own econ uh, economies, having control of our own resources, using our resources to bring about uh, social um, improvement. So the 1950s, 1960s and the breakup of these old European empires is a period of relative significant progress um, in terms of improvements in the lives of ordinary people. And finally, Neil, to what extent would you say that the Anglo-Arab War has poisoned relations between um, the people of this area and the West over the su successive decades? Oh, I think that's a very that's a very powerful thing indeed. I mean, I have I have worked as an archaeologist um, extensively um, in the Middle East, um, and I can tell you uh, that the uh, the Arab street if I can use that term, you know, ordinary Arab people are instinctively and universally suspicious of and hostile to Western imperialism, Western military um, intervention. It's a kind of uh, knee-jerk um, political response to a history of invasion and exploitation and uh, oppression. And of course, there are people who, when the War of Terror began, they said that they said to Blair and Bush and the ones who were encouraging them, they said, look, if you put a quarter of a million Western troops into an Arab country, into the heart of the Middle East, you will reap the whirlwind. And they did reap the whirlwind. And the reason they did was because the people of the region have this history of the rape of their own countries, their resources, their civilization, and so on. And yes, um, it definitely goes back to the Anglo-Arab Wars um, of the late uh, 19th century. That's possibly the most visceral um, ex historical experience. But it goes back further, of course, because the European incursions really began um, in the early 19th century. No question at all that this uh, historical legacy, this collective historical memory, if you like, is still very much part of the politics of the world today. That was Neil Faulkner. His book, Empire and Jihad, the Anglo-Arab Wars of 1870-1920, is published by Yale University Press. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Samita Mukherjee will be speaking about Indian suffragettes. Thank you.